and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I just want to thank you all for listening. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing these conversations on social media. Thanks for emailing them or texting them to a friend. I just really appreciate those of you that tune in week after week to listen to these incredible stories and how these people and performers are intentionally setting their mind. So thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, go over to iTunes, write us a review. Hopefully you'll give us five stars and share this conversation with somebody that you know. Now to today's guest. Matt Bodner wears many hats. He's been named to Forbes 30 Under 30, and he's a partner in multiple Inc. fastest growing companies. He's a deal maker. He's a strategy expert, and he has scaled businesses across multiple industries. He has done over $100 million in deal volume across 25 plus transactions. He's chairman of Fresh Technology, co-founder and managing partner of Fresh Capital, and managing partner of Fresh Holdings. Matt's gonna share with you today some of his work in real estate, some of his work is in restaurants, and some of his work also is in technology. So he's always looking to invest and also become a partner in companies. He really values ownership. He's an entrepreneur at heart, but his career started at Goldman Sachs, where he learned a lot about finance and what went into that world. And he quickly figured out that he wanted to pursue his own passions and create a life that was in alignment with his strengths, with his values. And that's going to come across in this conversation that Matt is really trying to live a life that is in alignment with how can he highlight his strengths? How can he work on some of his weaknesses? And how can he create space to be efficient with his time? So Matt is extremely wise. He's extremely bright. And he's really been intentional and thoughtful with how he thinks about not only his days, but also his weeks and where he wants to go from a career standpoint. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Matt. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Matt Bodner. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We got connected by a mutual friend of ours, Rod Rudy. So shout out to Rod. Uh, Rod is a hustler, is somebody who's always trying to get better and learn and grow. 
And he told me that you would be a great person for me to connect with. Uh, and then when I looked into the work that you're doing and what you're interested in, uh, there's a lot of overlap. So I'm excited to see where this goes. Uh, we have a love for food that we share. We have a love for learning about the psychology of performance. And I think we have a love for podcasting. So uh, there should be plenty for us to unpack. Where I'd love to start with you is it seems like you definitely have an entrepreneurial spirit as I've done some research on yourself. So I'm curious for you, when did the entrepreneurial spirit first show up for you? Yeah, well, first of all, Brian, thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks to Rod for introducing us, obviously. Um, and it's, a, it's an honor to be on here. So I'm excited to, to dig in and hopefully we'll have a good conversation. Um, when did I kind of become interested in, in or, or sort of develop an entrepreneurial spirit? That's a good question. I mean, I started out my career on Wall Street uh, I worked at Goldman Sachs for a number of years up in New York, and there's kind of two components that opened my eyes to a more entrepreneurial vision, um, for better or worse. And one of them was the Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss, which I'm sure many people have read or are familiar with, and it's probably opened a lot of people's eyes and kind of put them on a path or trajectory that they otherwise wouldn't have been on. And so I read that, uh, and that really started making me think differently about business and life and the possibilities and and how all the rules around us are are just socially reinforced illusions and all of this stuff which is great um but it was also there was also a couple really practical components or or things that happened one of them was as i was working I, you know i started to kind of look around at the trajectory and and you can see pretty clearly what it looks like when you, you know, if you're there for two years, five years, 10 years, whatever, you can see people on that path. And I didn't really like the idea of having my growth or my outcomes or my opportunities be limited by some sort of fixed hierarchy that says I can only make more money every two years or every four years or because so-and-so says so. Um, and I really wanted to have more control over my destiny. And the big watershed moment for me was I was actually reading an article about Google and the article, I don't really remember any of the contents or what it was about, um, other than this one sentence that completely changed my life. And it was the sentence I was reading about, I forget, it was either Larry Page or Sergey Brin, whichever one is the CEO at the time. And it was basically saying, you know, Larry Page, we'll just use Larry, Larry Page, the CEO whose salary is $100,000. And I read that piece of the sentence and started chuckling to myself as like a 22-year-old Wall Streeter in New York that my salary was basically bigger than Larry Page's. And I thought like, man, I'm the shit. Like, I'm so cool. And, and then uh, the next, there was like a comma and then the next piece of the sentence was, and he's worth like $20 billion in Google stock, right? And that was like a, uh, like a lead hammer hitting me over the head, basically, that... Um, you know, oh, wow, like you don't actually get rich from a salary, you get rich from owning equity in something. And that, to me, was really the, the big light bulb moment that really crystallized it and, and made me want to go down the path of being more entrepreneurial. What even brought you to Wall Street? What brought you to Goldman Sachs? Uh, it's clear, hey, you go up to Wall Street and I, got, I went to Syracuse University, which had a nice little pipeline down in New York City. So I, I know a lot of people that went in that direction. But for you, what was the draw to getting into finance or Wall Street or whatever it is that interested you about that job? Yeah, I mean, I had a weird even journey to getting to that. Uh, as an undergrad, I majored in political science with a minor in Mandarin Chinese. And so I didn't have the traditional finance background. Um, but I actually think that helped me differentiate and ultimately get the job that I got. Um, but to me, it was really, honestly, as a probably, you know, you have to make that that jump pretty early on as a sophomore or junior to really 
start gearing yourself up for getting the internship and then ultimately getting the job. And honestly, it was probably just my 19 year old mind at the time thinking like, what's the most badass thing that I can think of? And it was go work on Wall Street. And so I just, without really any meaningful thought behind that, started down that trajectory. And anything in your childhood or upbringing that showed your entrepreneurial drive or interest in money and, and business and that sort of stuff? Weirdly, I had this, this very unique component of my upbringing that I think definitely made me chafe against the corporate hierarchy and that kind of thing and really taught me the power and the flexibility of having more control over your own destiny. Um, one, I mean, my, my father's an entrepreneur and, and very successful business person. And so that was a really great example that I had very close at hand. But more so than that, my, uh, when I was growing up, my parents would actually homeschool me for a quarter of the year. So they would take me out of school for one, one semester in the springtime. And when this was about, this was basically kindergarten through fifth grade, they would take me out of school for, for two or three months. And my mom would homeschool me every day. And it was so funny because we would probably spend two or three hours a week on schoolwork. And I would come back and be ahead of the class on math, ahead of the class on reading, ahead of the class on all these different things. And I didn't really consciously think about that other than it set some sort of belief or behavior pattern in my mind that ultimately led me to the, the realization that I can be way more efficient if I don't have to deal with the, the system as a whole guiding my trajectory and that I actually can set my own trajectory. What was the reason that they did that for you? It's completely selfish, had nothing to do with providing me with that benefit. They just wanted to travel more. And um, my school was a barrier to them doing that. And so they took me out and my mom homeschooled me as a, to, as a you know, a, basically a secondary consequence of them wanting to go and, and not be in school or not be tied down to one place, um, which was another lesson in and of itself. And that's probably one of the biggest things I've learned from my parents is that, and Tim Ferriss really extrapolates on this deeply as well, but it, this idea that whatever the common sense rules say that you can or can't do, those are just, those aren't necessarily set, set in stone and you can actually break them, bend them, change them, do all kinds of different stuff if you're creative and you ask for it and, and you're willing to think about alternative strategies. So mom and dad wanted to travel and you're K through fifth grade. So I'm assuming you're traveling with them. So where did you guys go? What did you see? How did that shape how you see the world? I've traveled extensively. I've been to every continent except Antarctica, all over the, all over the world. I lived in China for a long time, um, all this different stuff. But none of that was really during that time period. They just wanted to go to the beach, basically. So we went to Florida <laughs> for, for two or three months, traveled around a little bit, um, but they just wanted to, to spend some time in Florida. So that, that was pretty much it. Um, and, uh, and you know, that, that led to all those various consequences and beliefs and, and behavior patterns. I think, I mean, that I'm reading into it a little bit cause I didn't ever have that conscious experience, but I was at such a young age that I think it absolutely shaped the way that I view the world. And it also gave me this realization that I didn't have to be inside the structures that everyone else was in, if that makes sense. And basically, you know, why for better or worse as a, you know, a six year old or a seven year old implanting that belief that. I don't have to sit in class and do all this and I can get to the same end game was a very dangerous belief in the sense that it, it made me start to question all the, I always sort of question the rules question. Why are we doing it that way? Why does it have to be done? Why do I have to wait in line? Why do I have to do this? And realize that there's usually almost always a better, smarter way to do something. And I have a relentless passion to figure that out. So I'm imagining 
fifth grade version of you. You're around 10 years old. You get to go to the beach uh, every spring uh, and you learn more than the kids that are banging their head against the wall and having to go to school every morning. Now you come back and you're in middle school. What were you like as a kid in, in the system, in the school system from middle school to high school? How did you show up and what did that look like? I was always kind of on the fringes of school generally. Um, I was a huge nerd. Um, I played a lot of video games. I used to stay up until like three in the morning playing video games and failing out of half of my classes. Um, in eighth grade, I actually got reprimanded by, sorry, I just dropped something, made a bunch of noise. But I, in eighth grade, I actually got reprimanded um, and pulled out of uh, a class that I was supposed to be taking. And they put me in a remedial speech class, which was basically a class for the kids that had bad grades and, and were just a place to park them for an hour. And they took me out of this like history class that was really in demand that I had wanted to take. And that ended up changing the whole trajectory of my high school uh, career and ultimately my life in many ways, because I ended up joining the debate team. And that was where I spent the vast majority of my time in, in high school. I didn't really care at all about school. Um, and debate in another sense gave me a ton of flexibility because it's the greatest excuse ever to get out of class. Teachers hate letting you out of school for any kind of sporting event, but debate, they, they shower praise on you and they're more than happy to say, Oh yeah, do you need to miss this exam? Do you need to be gone? Uh, if oh, it was for a debate tournament, absolutely not a problem at all. And so we got to leave school. I mean, we would, we would leave on regularly on Thursday, middle of the day and miss half the week and be on the road, traveling, debating, all this kind of stuff. So in some ways, I, I snuck out and found a way to not spend the whole week in school, um, even though I was technically there. But debate was the single most valuable activity that I participated in from that age, in that age bracket. I would say if you stacked up everything I ever learned in all of high school, it's, it's less than one probably less than 5% of what I learned and took from debate. It teaches you how to speak, teaches you how to think, teaches you how to write, teaches you how to read, teaches you how to research, teaches you how to understand the world and the way things work. Um, it's absolutely the greatest activity that I possibly could have participated in. And I highly recommend anybody take a look and, and maybe getting involved in it. And were you an only child? I have a weird dynamic on that as well. I'm technically uh, the youngest of four, um, but my siblings are all half siblings who are a lot older than me. So my youngest or closest sibling is 17, like 14, 15 years older than me. I don't even know. They're so old. They're in like they're, my sister is the oldest and we are exactly 20 years apart. Wow. And so you, but you really grew up as like the only child for, for your parents. And so it sounds like it felt like an only child type yeah, deal. For sure. uh, so how did that impact you in, in being in a house with, with mom and dad and any, any thoughts on how that affected you and how, how you came to be? My parents are very independent and, do their own thing all the time, which, which taught me, maybe I just genetically inherited this also, but I, I, I can entertain myself endlessly. Like I could sit at home and I, as you can see, I have a huge array of, of books and everything. Um, I, I could, if you, if you leave me alone for 48 hours, I would be completely satisfied reading, doing all kinds of stuff on my own. I can keep myself entertained for basically an infinite amount of time. And so probably made me a little bit of an introvert only in the sense that I, I have so much that I want to do and read and think and engage and learn about that. Um, I, I always have an infinite agenda of, of books to read and things to do and, and things that I want to do. And if, if I had five clones of myself, I still wouldn't be able to master all of the skills I want to master, learn all the things I want to learn, read all the things I want to read. And I had this random thought recently and I actually posted it, I think on LinkedIn, which is how do you feel about reading during 
quote unquote office hours. So it's 10 a.m. I regularly read during the middle of the day all the time, like on an almost daily basis. Um, I, I typically structure my schedule to where I won't have any meetings before noon, basically. And all of my meetings are stacked from noon or 1 p.m. until about 5 p.m. And typically, I also will try not to have our, as very few as meetings as possible on Fridays. And I spend my mornings every morning focused on, and we can get into how I intentionally structure my day around productivity and, and routines and all this kind of stuff, because this gets into what I think is one of the core components that I've learned from the science of success. And also just from researching and studying peak performers and high achievers and all of this. But I, uh, I, would, I, I would, I would love for you to just go ahead and do it. We don't have to go in any sort of order. Okay, cool. So. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just dive into that and that will, that will, um, incidentally answer the question um, in a much deeper way. So my whole, my whole daily routine, and I'll, and I'll back this up and tell you a little bit more about the, the bigger picture. I mean, I've studied and, and, and interviewed and you know, I've interviewed hundreds of the world's top experts on science and productivity and sleep and psychology and all this stuff. I've, I've researched and read the biographies of all the greatest achievers of the world. I mean, you can see some of them lining up the walls behind me, Titan and Rockefeller and uh, and Elon Musk and all of those people. And I've, I've really spent a lot of time trying to understand what are the habits, routines, activities, et cetera, uh, that make someone super productive. And how do you really achieve what I call, high, how, do you be, how do you become somebody who's high leverage, right? And, and how do you get more done in the same amount of time? Because the people who are achieving epic results have the same amount of hours in the day as you or me or anyone else. And yet their results don't scale in a linear fashion. They're not working 10,000 times harder, but they're creating 10,000 or in the case of somebody like a Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or whatever, they're creating hundreds of millions of times more value for the same hour input. So time is not necessarily the lever that drives value creation. So what is it? And one of the biggest lessons that I've learned, and this, is, this has come out of a huge amount of my interviews as well, is to regularly structure and have time for what the research calls contemplative routines um, in your daily routine. And, and I'll walk you through exactly how I structure my daily routine. But a contemplative routine is basically taking time to step back, to think, to reflect, to journal. Meditation can, can be considered a part of it, that kind of contemplative routine, though I have both meditation and journaling and, and typically in my daily routine. And I, I basically carve out the peak productivity, the peak, uh, the peak time of my day to be by myself and working, working on the most important things and learning and reading and reflecting. And then I have my low energy, low productivity time for all of my meetings. And so my routine looks like this, and there's a weekly architecture that kind of underpins this as well. But in the mornings, I will get up, let's say, around 7 a.m. The first thing I do is meditate. So I'll meditate for 10 to 15 minutes. Um, we could get into the meditation framework. I've tried a bunch of them, and I have one that I really like. That I Can you give it to us? Yeah, so I interviewed this guy named Dr. Dan Siegel, who's one of the smartest people I've ever talked to. He's got a bunch of books he's written. He's a Harvard PhD, super, super smart guy. And he has a meditation framework called the Wheel of Awareness, which starts with the senses and then body awareness and then thought awareness and then um, all a couple other components. And I find that just personally for me to be a really, really effective meditation methodology um, because I like something that has a body component that really grounds you into your body. There's a lot of science and research around how body awareness and, and body management techniques help you deal with, help you improve your emotional intelligence, help you be more compassionate, help you with emotional management, all kinds of different stuff. And so I like to integrate something like that um, into, my, into my meditative framework. Anyway, so I'll meditate. Typically, right after I meditate, I'll spend 10 to 15 minutes journaling on some kind of problem or challenge. And, and 
there's a whole bunch of uh, of neuroscience and research around this of the of the neuroscience of creativity and the, and the science of what's called uh, creative incubation. And the idea is basically everyone's probably had this experience of you're working on a problem, you're stuck on something, you step away for a little while, you come back, suddenly you have an insight or a breakthrough or, or you, you know, if you're playing a video game, you get stuck on this level and you go have lunch, and you come back and you instantly beat it. Um, and what happens is when you consciously step away from something, the subconscious combines and recombines and does a lot of the deep processing work to get you to a novel insight or a breakthrough. And so you can consciously engineer that by framing questions or challenges or problems at the end of your day and then coming back to them the next morning after letting go of the problem at night, sleeping, meditating, and then you come and journal about that question or challenge the next morning and you can really tap into a lot of insights and breakthroughs. And so I try to have a creative journaling session. Sometimes I'll journal about emotional problems, challenges, whatever, and kind of get things off my chest because that's a really powerful technique. If you have something that you can't stop thinking about or you're worried about or that's bothering you, journaling is a great way to get it out of your head. But I'll also, and, and probably 60% of the time, 70% of the time, do more creative driven journaling sessions where I'll take a problem or challenge and say, how am I going to solve this? Or what are 10 ways that I can solve this? And I'll try to actively develop and build that muscle of creative thinking, lateral thinking, breaking apart my assumptions. Hey, Matt, can you just give us an example? Uh, Because you're talking kind of generically. And I think if you could really drill down and give someone an example of, because I think journaling is a challenge for most of us. And we don't often know like, all right, well, where do I even start? What do I even focus on? So So if you could go back over like the last couple of weeks and like give us an example of the way that you had this challenge and then how the journaling helped you, I think it'll be stickier for the people. That yeah. Are so there's two different kinds of journaling and I, and I kind of lump them into the same journaling bucket and some days I'll do one, some days I'll do the other. Do you want me to, do, is there a particular one that you want to dig into like more than the other or? Whatever you think would be most relevant to most people. Yeah. I mean, I could probably dig up, open my Evernote and actually like pull up some old journal entries um, just to give you a sense. I mean, a lot of them are, some of them are like personal or talk about like business things, um, that I, you know, have some sort of confidentiality element, but I'll give you, I'll give you two examples. Um, one is recently was looking at acquiring a company and trying to figure out what are we going to do on the operating side after we acquire that business. And there's an existing operator, but they may not have the capacity or the ability to really scale to the next level. And so, uh, my partner and I had had been p- kind of pinging back and forth and worried about what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? We don't, you know, do we need to bring somebody in? What like, just, just worried about this challenge and not really able to figure it out. And so I just did a journaling session of the different strategies or ways that I could potentially uh, bring somebody in or basically solve that challenge of, of having an operator and, and came up with seven or eight potential solutions or ideas, things like, I'm trying to find that exact uh trying to find that exact journal entry so I can give you some of the specifics. But And for those that don't know Evernote, give give everyone some background on Evernote as well. Yeah. So Evernote is, I'm a huge, huge fan of it. We have a couple podcast interviews about it on Science of Success where we talk about how important it is. Um, it's basically a, just a note thing that you can use to organize information. I think of it as an external brain where I keep all kinds of thoughts, ideas, concepts, um, templates, checklists, it's, it's just a general purpose note-taking application, but it's incredibly powerful if you use it correctly and you can, you can keep notes from almost anything. Um, and so I found, I found this journal entry in Evernote um, and the question was, um, what skill sets or current operating roles or gaps do we need to have filled 
And then how can we solve the gaps that we can fill those? So a couple of the ideas I had were getting help from mentors or relationships that I already have. And then I listed out like 15 people that I could ask for help and tell them, hey, here's the challenge that I have. Do you know anyone or could you help me with solving X? Um, I even actually wrote a quick email template that I would just sort of a draft of what I would potentially send to them, basically saying, hey, we're buying this company. We need you to get your advice on either you coming in as an advisor, you helping us roadmap how to solve XYZ or any recommendations for people you know or think we should work with that we could hire, partner or bring on that could do the same thing. Right. So then I said we could find other companies that already do what we need. We could JV with them. We could hire interns and apprentices to do it and, and kind of a low cost way or for some of the lower level, lower kind of tasks on the totem pole. We could get referrals from, from people that we already know. We could hire somebody on contingency. We could hire somebody from an outsource firm. We could JV uh, on a, with a different company and, and bring in a killer ops team from that perspective. We could leverage a mastermind that I'm a part of and get, you know, things from them. And then I kind of have a few more that I, that I went and wrote down all these different things. But the point is that's just one business challenge, one question we were thinking about. And I spent maybe 20 or 30 minutes just writing out ideas and journaling on it. And the thing about that process and strategy is that it's a really powerful tool if you cultivate it on a regular basis to start to solve your challenges and get insights and, and create breakthroughs. But it's also the kind of thing, and there's a huge amount of research around this. And I spent probably a year, year and a half of my life studying the process of creativity, reading dozens and dozens of books about it, coming through scientific research, interviewing experts, all kinds of stuff, and, and came away with a number of interesting takeaways about how creativity really works and what actually underpins it. And one of the biggest uh, takeaways, and there's a great book that, that talks about a lot about creativity and kind of summarizes some of the key research. If you want to go to the, the, some of the original or deeper research, there's a guy named Dean Simonton who has two books called Origin of Genius and uh, Greatness, who, who Makes Greatness and Why or something like that. I forget the exact title. Those books are really dry, like research heavy, talks about methodology and sample size and all this kind of stuff. There's uh, Originals by Adam Grant, which is a really popular book, um, is a more recent book that a contemporary book that summarizes a lot of the key findings of Simonton's research. I've read all of that stuff. There's another one by uh, Steven Johnson called where good ideas come from. Anyway, those are some resources, but the key lesson was basically there's a couple, but one is this idea that even great creators and, and Simonton's research looked at people, everything from like Einstein to Mozart to, uh, you know, eminent to Thomas Edison, all kinds of different fields of endeavor and the greatest predictor of as, as what the research calls eminence, which is, which is basically their term for uh, popularity being well, right? Like we know who Mozart is, but we don't know who some random composer from the 18th century is or whatever that maybe wasn't as famous as Mozart, right? So Mozart has a lot of eminence, right? That's the kind of thing they were measuring is how well known are they? Um, and the greatest single predictor of eminence is just output. That's it, output. And, and, and actually, eminent creators had no ability to forecast or predict whether their creations would, would go on to be successful or not. So a Mozart would say, this is my masterpiece and put it out and it would just be kind of a mediocre flop. And then he would have some random composition that was sitting in a dustbin that he kind of threw out there and it would end up being a massive success. And so even the greatest creators didn't have any ability to forecast whether their creations would be successful or not. What do you think is underneath that uh what do you think the psychology is to get yourself to a place of putting out a lot of content because the reason i ask is i have a lot of clients who literally struggle with well i want to write a book but 
I, I, I don't know how to start or I have an idea for a podcast, but I don't know. How, what do you think is underneath the thing there that, that allows people to put out their ideas? Yeah, well, let me so let me impact that statement because I think that some degree answers the question, which is basically this idea that if that's the case, and that's what overwhelmingly the conclusion of the scientific research is around creativity. And like I said, I've I've spent a pretty decent amount of time researching this stuff. Um, then the answer is that the best possible strategy for creative output is just volume of creation. And there's no the, the there's the myth of the artist who sits there and contemplates their perfect creation and then goes and creates it. That's, that's the vast, vast majority of, of eminent creators did the exact opposite of that. And so once you understand that, you start to realize that the only way to get good ideas is to double or triple the rate of, of bad ideas that you generate. And so you have to be completely unafraid of generating a lot of bad ideas, a lot of bad content, a lot of bad stuff. And until you're willing to do that, you're going to be paralyzed by the fear that what you put out has to be perfect. And the, 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 uh, the mode for creative, uh, like the statistical mode for creative uh, output was basically one, right? Which means the vast majority of creators created one composition. And then if you look at Mozart's, and there's some really cool graphics around this, but it, it was like 500 compositions, right? And the average person who even, this is even people who got through the threshold of actually creating a composition, because I'm sure there's a lot of people who never even published one, but the mode was one. And the eminent creators had hundreds. And if you look at how many patents Thomas and Edison had, he had 2,000 patents or something insane. And so if you're, if you're sitting there struggling, afraid to create, afraid to put, you know, create output, you have to realize that you need to start generating bad ideas. And you have to realize that there's going to be a lot of bad ideas until you come up with a couple good ones. And there, there's one other piece. I know you want to jump in, but I want to just finish this because it's really important, which is basically there's two, two modes of creative thought. One is generation and the other is selection. And generation is where you're coming up with ideas and selection is where you're evaluating the quality of those ideas. You cannot do them at the same time or you'll massively crush your ability to generate ideas. And so when you're doing the generation phase, you should, you should consciously throw away the judgment and try to generate wacky, goofy, off-the-wall bad ideas because if you do that, you're going to have a better pool of ideas to then select on. And, and if you try to judge your ideas in real time while you're creating them, you're going to end up overall with worse ideas and fewer ideas. I love it. It's so great. I, I was smiling because when you said you have to put out a lot of bad ideas, I thought to myself, I'm so good at that. Like I'm so good at, at putting out bad ideas. And it's amazing to me when I do put out an idea, how much judgment there is and how much People will be so critical and harsh about why something won't work. And what I've learned is to say, yeah, but like that's, of course, most of them aren't going to work, but I can't let that stifle me from continuing to put out ideas. Yeah. I mean, and there's the, there's that old Teddy Roosevelt quote, right? The, the man know, in the quote. arena. Yeah, exactly. And, and, but I think what often stops people from pursuing the ideas and even pursuing the generation of the ideas to your point is a fear of embarrassment or fear of shame or fear of judgment or one of those massive emotional fears that they don't even want to go into that space or they stay in their lane. And if you go back to your story about being at Goldman, like you could have easily stayed in your lane, made a lot of money, lived in New York, lived in a two bedroom apartment, um, you know, and counted your, your, your dollars coming in, but there was something about you that wanted to probably create more, A, autonomy and freedom and, and wealth, 
Um, but also there's a lack of ability to be creative, which is I'm, I'm 35. I think you're close in age to me as well. I now know a lot of those kids who are on wall street uh, and are in their thirties and they're making great money and they don't have a whole lot of optionality to move off because they're making so much money. Exactly. And they you get can't... trapped. That's why I ripped the bandaid off as early as I yeah, could. Yeah, you did. You ripped it off. And by the way, that's cool if somebody wants to go in that direction and, and they want to retire when they're 40 or 45 or 50 and go live in Florida or whatever it is that they want to do. But I think the issue is that a lot of people aren't intentional with how they're going about their career and then they get stuck. And then that's where you see a lot of issues start to bubble to the surface. Uh, but I love your thoughts on, on creativity. And I love how you are structuring your day to be in alignment with what you really value. And so you've talked about meditation, you've talked about journaling, what comes next for you as far as your day goes, because I would imagine we still got some time before we get to, to 12 o'clock. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's all before like 8am probably. Um, and then what I'll do typically, and this, this gets zooms out a little bit to the weekly architecture, the way that I think about my week is it will start there and then that'll inform what happens after the meditation and the journaling. Um, but every Sunday I'll typically spend an hour or two doing a recap of my whole week. I'll look at every email. I'll look at every meeting. I'll look at all my notes from Evernote for the last week or two. I'll look at all my to do's. I'll look at all my goals and I'll basically reconcile everything and I'll formulate a plan for that week that says, if these are my goals, if this is what's going on right now, if this is what I want to do, what needs to happen this week, specifically every single day to move the ball down the field and progress on those goals. And so I try to set an MIT or most important task, one, at least one, if not two or three for each day that is going to be, if I achieve that thing, that day is a success regardless of what else happens. And so my, my next step, and again, this is all before checking email, getting sucked into the vortex of people wanting this and needing that and, and all of the bullshit that comes along with that. Um, I will, I will go and work on and try to execute my MITs before I do anything else. And so my goal is by nine or 10 in the morning to have meditated, journaled, and then, and then knocked out the two or three most important things that I set out that I wanted to do that day. And then before any of that, then I have time to maybe check email or get caught up on all of the kind of administrative pieces of the puzzle. And the one part that the one part you didn't mention, which I, I was expecting was exercise. Uh, how do you think about exercise and fitness? Yeah, so I, I probably exercise, I could do a better job for sure. I probably exercise two or three times a week, maybe three or four times a week, depending on my travel schedule. Um, that's a mix of one of the things that I did to be more efficient is I built a gym in my garage so that I didn't have to waste time going to the gym and so that I could consume content while I was working out and, and not have to worry about like headphones or whatever else I could just listen to, whether it's YouTube videos or podcasts or audiobooks while I'm working out and, and have it be kind of on my own terms. Um, and so I, I'll probably exercise around 11 or 12 on an average day while I work out. And I'll also work out, try to skew one or two of those onto the weekends too, where I have a little bit more time. Um, but I do a mix of just cardio, regular cardio. I do a really basic full body lifts, like five by five strong lifts, that kind of stuff, squats, bench press, deadlifts, the, the, the core things. And then I also try to have some kind of climbing activity or like, well, a climbing is my activity, some kind of like active thing that I can do that is beyond just either some sort of workout. And so climbing is what my main one is now, which is I try to climb at least once a week. Climbing mountains, what, indoor, what indoor rock climbing. Indoor. Okay, yeah. cool. And obviously you've gone the path of being an entrepreneur, having the freedom. Um, but I'm curious for you, you're also managing people. So if you had an employee that wanted to read 
in the middle of the day or wanted to meditate or wanted to journal, uh, what, what would that conversation look like from, from your end? So I structure all the companies that I run are more or less results only work environments, which is, I mean, we don't follow exactly the core tenets of, of a row, but essentially I don't care at all what vacation they take, what they're doing, what, how they spend their time, as long as they're creating the results that, that I want them to create. I don't audit them. I don't check on their vacation days. I don't do any of that stuff. Um, my only concern is, are you, are you creating results? Because hey. And give people some idea of, of what you're up to from a business standpoint. Because I know we, we hopped around. We went from Goldman Sachs to talking about what you do on a daily basis, which I loved that we did. Uh, but fill in, the, fill in the gaps a little bit for us as far as career-wise, where you're at today, where you were at when you left Goldman. Um, we can sort of play around, but I'd love to give people some idea of, of what you're up to and, and what your business yeah, and, looks like. And the other thing, and I'll kind of, as I explain what I do currently, um, you know, I don't manage, I mean, I have some employees that I manage, but I really try not to manage staff because it's not something that I'm amazing at. What I try to do is, and, and I'll give you, I can, or we can go as specific as you want into an example of this. Um, but what I'll typically do is invest in a company, bring in a management team. Sometimes I'll be a part of the management team for some period of time. But my goal is, is basically to never be on the org chart of any business. My goal is to be the, the owner, the board member, et cetera, and not actually involved in the day-to-day -day operations. And so I don't want to be that, that person that's, you know, doing all the HR stuff and watching everybody's hours and all these kinds of things. It's not my core skill set. It's not what I'm good at. Um, what I'm really good at is putting deals together, putting transactions together, buying companies, strategy, that kind of stuff. That's where I spend the vast majority of my time. And so I'm a partner in and an owner of a number of different businesses across a couple different industry verticals. Um, the, the, the three kind of biggest buckets are the three or four main areas that I focus on. Um, the biggest is probably commercial real estate. I'm a partner in a commercial real estate firm. We own and operate a bunch of different commercial real estate assets. Um, I'm a partner in a, in a firm that owns and operates and invests in a bunch of different restaurant companies. Um, I'm a partner in a, in a, in a, or I'm a partner chairman of the board and, and majority shareholder of a technology SaaS company, um, that I did run for a number of years. And then I bought, I bought a majority stake in the company, um, probably five or six years ago, actually probably seven or eight years ago at this point, ran the company for a couple of years. And then two or three years ago, brought in somebody else to be the CEO and moved to a chairman role. And it's the greatest decision I've ever made. There was even what, an article about it. What went into that? What went into your decision to, because a lot of people want the control. They want to make sure that they have their hand on it. And I understand you now have the self-awareness to say, uh, Hey, I'm better at doing X rather than Y, but you're probably relatively young. It sounds like when you're doing this, how did, how did you make that decision to let go of the control of the company? Yeah, I mean, I'm still the majority shareholder, so I fundamentally have control. And if the CEO, you know, if we clash on something, like I have the last word, but we have a very amicable relationship where it never boils down to that. And I want to incorporate his ideas and thoughts, et cetera, into- and Maybe control's not the right word, right? Maybe, uh, uh, what would be the better word? Because you're not in the- you're not I get as what much, you're saying, like yeah. the details of the business, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm, I tell people I'm probably one of the laziest people ever because I don't want to do anything right? Like anytime I have a task or job that falls into my plate, my number one thought process is how can I stop doing this? How can I hire somebody? How can I delegate it? How can I quit doing it? How can I outsource it? How can we just remove this activity from our, you know, our list of things that are, that we need to be doing? Does it really need to be done, et cetera? 
I try to always replace myself. And so that's partially a personality trait, partially something that I've learned. Like my problem just for whatever reason has never been, uh, a, I, like I, my problem is not delegating. My problem is that I delegate too much and I will, I delegate. There's a, there's a really good book called the outsiders, um, which is about, uh, a bunch of unconventional CEOs that all kind of fall into the mold of Warren Buffett and have these amazing returns over the huge time horizon in the, in the, in the public markets. It's a fascinating read about capital allocation and all this other stuff. But one of the companies described their management structure as decentralization to the, to the point of anarchy, which is pretty close to how I run most of the businesses that I'm involved in. I try to just find good people, create the right incentive structure for them, and then let them do their thing. I don't want to be involved in the day-to-day -day business and the details. That stuff bores me to death. I, I, I am actively almost allergic to doing it. And so it's just the way that I'm structured. And if anything, my problem is that I'll just set them off on their way and be like, all right, talk to me in like a month or two and tell me how things are going, um, which sometimes I need to be more focused on that kind of stuff. But that's just my, that's my makeup and my, the way that I approach pretty much everything in life. How do you, I don't want to say overcome, but compensate for this tendency to always want to delegate? What else do you do to try to make sure that you're not over delegating? I think the best thing that I've found is just to find the right people and then try to create a structure of reporting and engagement that keeps me engaged and aware of what's happening in the business, whether that's a combination of weekly financial reporting, KPIs, management meetings on some kind of regular cadence, uh, those kinds of things. Those are really the elements that ultimately, I think, let me, let me, proactively structure the kind of engagement I want and then try to keep accountable to that, uh, that engagement framework on a go forward basis. And so we have an idea. And by the way, you're, you're spot on. Most people have, they struggle delegating it. Yeah. Delegating I'm, their work. I'm the exception. To, you're the to exception. Sure. And a lot of that comes from a place of insecurity, to be honest. Uh, they are often afraid that if they give up control or the delegate, the power, then they are going to either lose their job or they're going to be out of a job or they are less than because they um, are not adding value. Uh, so that's where a lot of it comes from, at least from the conversations I've had with my clients. Uh, that's where it usually shows up and, and, and occurs. Um, but for you, you, you mentioned what you don't want to do and uh, you don't want to be in the weeds and uh, you'd rather sit back and let them do their job. What does get you really excited? When do you really get into that flow state and really feel like you're doing your best work? What are the things that get you, make you feel most alive? I think there's two, maybe three uh, kind of key pieces to that. One is, um, you know, fundamentally I'm a deal maker. So I like to buy companies. Uh, that's, that's the thing that gets me excited looking at deals, working on deals, negotiating transactions, that kind of stuff. That's where I really thrive and, and spend most of my time and energy. Um, and, and that's the number one thing. I think the second piece is, um, high level strategy. So I love to, you know, and, and the things that I read and think about, like, I, I love to look at a business and I even, um, even when I'm having conversations with friends or, or, you know, other business people or whatever, I'm infinitely curious. And so I want to understand how everything works about the business model. How does, you know, how do you acquire customers? How do you create value? How do you run your operations? How do you do all this kind of stuff? I want to understand how everything works. And so to me, that strategy component and the, the really big picture piece is something that I'm really interested in and, and like to spend time on. And whenever I meet with the CEOs or the management teams or whatever, the companies that I'm, that I'm an investor or partner in, um, I'm, I always 
want to look at it and try to pull them out of the weeds and say, all right, well, let's look at the really high level. Where are we going? How are we structuring the company? What is, what's our strategy? All this kind of stuff. So that's really the next thing that I like to spend a lot of time and energy on. And then maybe the third piece is, um, and I don't know exactly how to describe this, but studying, learning, thinking about uh, uh, performance in the sense of everything that I'm doing with the podcast, um, all the all the learning and education I'm doing for myself, and also helping other people kind of overcome that through the vehicle like the podcast. Um, because you know, you you touched on it earlier. Like, there's so many predictable problems and biases and challenges that people have, and it's 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 funny because the human brain is wired in a certain way. Human behavior uh, hasn't really changed much over the last couple thousand years, but our society has massively evolved. And so people still struggle with the exact same things. They struggle with the same limiting beliefs. They struggle with the same kind of emotional barriers. They struggle with the same fears and limitations. And it's, it's once you can see through that and realize that it, you can move past it, um, and I don't, you know, I've moved beyond where I was previously in my life, but I think that there's a lot of growth that I still have left to do, but I see people who are stuck, who are stifled, who are trapped and who it really are in a prison of their own making that they could get out of. And there's, there's science and research and <clears throat> methods that they could use to move beyond that. And so it really makes me sad to see people who are trapped by their own cognitive biases and limiting beliefs and their, their limited understanding of the world. And that's one of the things that makes me interested and excited is trying to help people move, move beyond that. And that's what science of success is about. When did you first become interested in, in that? I have <clears throat> always been interested in it and have been a, an avid reader of self-help and personal development and all that kind of stuff for a long time. I really started going down the psychology rabbit hole when I read a book by, uh, or I started reading basically everything by or about Warren Buffett. And um, that was part of my quest to really study some of the world's greatest achievers and all of this kind of stuff. And I started reading a bunch about Buffett. And if you read enough about Buffett, you come across a guy named Charlie Munger, who's his business partner, who's really, really, really smart. And Munger talks a lot about psychology and basically says that psychology underpins all human interaction, right? If you, if you want to understand how to motivate yourself, if you want to understand how to motivate others, if you want to understand why people do certain things, if you want to understand how companies behave, how economics really works, all this stuff, you need to understand psychology. And so I started understanding and getting deeper into psychology. And there's a whole serendipitous series of events that ultimately resulted in me starting the podcast and, and, and creating it and, and it gaining some traction. And that was uh, almost four years ago now that we really started on that journey. And it's been a fascinating journey. It's been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. I've interviewed a lot of really cool people. Um, but I've probably been the biggest beneficiary of it more than anyone because I've had the ability to really go deep into the weeds and, and level up my own thinking and, and, and test my own thoughts and assumptions and questions against some of the preeminent thinkers in psychology, which has helped me really refine the way that I think about the world. It's clear that you have been a learner and always wanting to learn more. You talked about books, you talked about podcasts, you talked about watching YouTube videos when you're working out. What else do you do for yourself? Because there's an element of self-awareness that you are showing up with in this interview and knowing what you like, what you don't like, where you're going, how you think about things. What else do you do to work on yourself, on your inner game, um, specific as it relates to you and not as it relates to maybe those experts? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with you know, the funny thing is on the sites of success, the single biggest most, well, there's actually two, but they're interrelated. The single biggest most recurrent theme is that self-awareness underpins growth. 
And without self-awareness, you can't grow. And the second most recurrent theme is that meditation is one of the most effective things that you can do. And they're very interrelated because you, you, you talk about cultivating self-awareness the way that I've cultivated self-awareness. And, and I, I tell people this a lot, which is basically, I don't think that I'm, I think I'm a little bit more self-aware than most people. But I think if you looked at the journey of self-awareness, I think I have a huge, huge, long way to go before I've really mastered it. The reality is most people, I'm maybe five or 10% away along the journey of, of self-awareness. I think most people haven't even begun or don't even know that there is a journey. Um, and so, you know, I've spent a lot of time on it, but that's not to say that I'm even close to completing that project. And I don't think it's a project that can ever really be completed. But to me, the two core components of it are meditation and, and journaling and reflecting and digging into your own beliefs and assumptions. And the meditation is important because it, it builds the muscle of awareness so that you can start to see your own thought patterns and behavior patterns and, and just capture what they are. And then the journaling is a great way that once you've captured those to start analyzing them and thinking about what are they doing and why are they, why are they this way and how are they impacting me and what is this creating in my life or why do I feel this way and what underpins that feeling and is that really a true belief and is it empowering me or is it helping me, is it hurting me? And all of those things they're, they're very mutually reinforcing in the work together, but those to me are the two most important skill sets to cultivate self-awareness, which I think is the, the meta skill that underpins everything else basically. Um, but to zoom out and answer your question a little bit more broadly, what else am I doing to work on myself? Um, I think to me spending that, that time in the morning is my, is my proactive time. I mean, I'm also relentless about cramming in every single second of learning that I possibly can uh, into anything that I'm doing. So when I'm brushing my teeth, I'm listening to an audiobook. When I'm walking around my house, when I'm getting dressed, I'm listening to an audiobook. When I'm when I'm you know in my car, I'm listening to an audiobook. Like there's, I I listen to probably three or four hours of content a day, all in dead time. And dead time, I mean like when I'm waiting in line, when I'm doing this or whatever. And I try to pick up every little inch of of free space that's available so that I can so that I can absorb as much as possible. Um, but I mean, I don't know if that answers the question or not. And, and if there, if you want me to dig into more about like, what am I doing for myself? I'm more than happy to. Um, but I, that's, that's how I think about it at a high level. No, I think it's good. You are a young guy. You, you mentioned three companies that you're heavily involved with real estate, restaurants, SaaS technology. Uh, there's other stuff that you, you know, podcast. I know you wrote a book. So someone else might be listening to this podcast. My and- book sucks by the way. And that's a great <laughs> example of doing shitty stuff. Um, I have dozens of failed projects and all kinds of really bad stuff that I've put out. And the podcast happened to be one thing that got some traction. And so if you want to talk about the conversation that we had earlier about putting out bad stuff, my book is garbage and I wouldn't recommend anyone buy it. And I actually think I took it off Amazon because it's so bad, but it might still be lurking around. Um, But yeah, don't buy it. It's terrible. It's still it's still on the internet. So uh, you're you're probably the first guest that I've ever had that says don't buy don't buy my book. So I appreciate your candor. And that actually was going to my question, which is, what do you struggle with? Like, what do you find yourself challenged by or struggle with? Because as as I was sort of describing your background, I think from the outside looking in, it's like, man, like this guy's ripping and running. He's got his mornings to himself, and then he's still really adding value to these companies. And uh, it, it seems like things are, are pretty damn good. So what do you, what do you struggle with? What, what are the challenges for you? Yeah. I mean, I struggle with a couple things. I mean, at a simple, the simplest level, I think the biggest struggle is for everyone almost always is getting out of your own way because there's every time I think I've started to understand the process of actually getting out of my own way, 
I realized that there's just, it's almost like an infinite rabbit hole of, of more and more ways that I'm still blocking myself and my own beliefs and assumptions are getting in the way of what could be even bigger opportunities. I think at a very micro specific level, probably then they're interrelated, but the biggest struggle that I have is that there's too much stuff that I want to do. Like I want to do a million different things, like whether it's companies, ideas, opportunities. Like I said, I literally, if I had five clones of myself, I think I would still not have enough of me to just do everything I want. And so my biggest struggle is constantly trying to wean down or cut off or shut down things that aren't necessarily critical priorities. Um, and it's, it's painful because there's stuff that I really want to do and really want to achieve. And I can see it in my mind if I just did this, 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 and this, that I could do it. And yet I just don't have the physical time to, to actually achieve everything I want to achieve. And so I, you know, one of my themes for 2019 is to be as ruthless as possible with my time and my priorities. And that has, you know, I've, I'm, I'm doing okay at that. I mean, I've been, I've had some opportunities to, to be, you know, to trim things down, but I've also, and I've trimmed a lot of stuff, but I, I, I constantly am curious and excited and, and always want to be doing new things. And so as soon as I clear a bunch of space off my plate and say, all right, this is what I'm really going to focus in. Um, I add a million other things. And so that's my biggest challenge is, is, is a combination of not having the time and the resources and the energy to execute everything I want to do. And I can see a path for, um, but really that's actually just a manifestation of not having ruthless enough clarity about what my priorities are and, and sticking to those things and not doing too much extra extraneous stuff. So in an effort to respect your time, I think that's a great place for us to stop. Before you go, you mentioned the podcast. I know you also have a website where people can really find out where, what you're up to and what you're doing. I know you have a big social media presence. So share with everybody where they can learn more about you and what you're up to. Yeah. I mean, the easiest place is just go to successpodcast.com, successpodcast.com. Sign up for my email list. Uh, if you do, I read and respond to every single email that I get on that email list personally. Um, and, and if you don't believe me, then send me an email. It's matt at successpodcast.com. I will respond. Um, but yeah, join our email list. Listen to the science of success. It's a great podcast and that's the easiest way to engage with me. And Matt, as I said, he's had on amazing guests, Michael Gervais. I think you had him on twice. He's been on he's our pod. He's been on our podcast and actually is the reason why I, I started this thing. I, I fell in love with his podcast, uh, but you've had on Amy Cuddy. You've had on, uh, Adam Grant, who you mentioned. I mean, there's, there's some really amazing authors on there and, and thought leaders on there. So definitely check out his podcast. Uh, you can listen to all of our podcasts at intentionalperformers.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. And then we're on Instagram, intentional underscore performers. Matt, thank you so much for the time. Next time in Nashville, I'm going to hit you up and hopefully grab, grab a bite to eat uh, and, and maybe grab a drink. So thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to talking to you again soon. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show, Brian. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. But every Sunday, I'll typically spend an hour or two doing a recap of my whole week. I'll look at every email. I'll look at every meeting. I'll look at all my notes from Evernote from the last week or two. I'll look at all my to-dos. I'll look at all my goals. And I'll basically reconcile everything. And I'll formulate a plan for that week that says... If these are my goals, if this is what's going on right now, if this is what I want to do, what needs to happen this week, specifically every single day, to move the ball down the field and progress in those goals? And so I try to set an MIT or most important task, one, at least one, if not two or three, for each day that is going to be, if I achieve that thing, that day is a success. 
regardless of what else happens. 